Would you all pray with me before you're seated? Our gracious and holy Father, you are great. And that's why we're here today, to celebrate the fact that your son is risen. He came busting out of that tomb almost 2,100 years ago. He's given us life. God, we are so grateful. We are so thankful. And God, as we celebrate and as we talk about this today and as we also celebrate baptisms in all three services today, I just pray that as you bless us, that we would glorify you in all that we do today. Open our hearts and our minds to your word today, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Um, First of all, let me say that if you're new, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, Second of all, um, I I apologize to those of you sitting on this side of the room. We sort of pushed you down there because uh, we wanted to be able to fill the whole room, and then you had to look at that screen the whole time. I'm sorry about that. That screen has worked something like 300 Sundays in a row, and then today it decided not to work. Uh, however, I did discover during the third song that if you look through the slats there, it's really easy to just look through the people and look through the slats. That screen in the lobby has the words. I was kind of cheating there. Uh, also, I know that um, with the arrangement here, occasionally I just want to say this up front so that Uh, I know that you're being distracted by it, and I'm sorry about it. My mic might cut in and out a little bit because of the arrangement here. We tried, again, yesterday it worked fine, and then this morning it was a little bit hanky, but all right, so there's all the disclaimers out of the way. I also want to thank all of you for coming to the 7.30 in order to open up room at the 9 o'clock service for people who don't know us as well. Uh, But judging by how many of you came to the 7.30, I think we'll just have the people getting baptized at the 9 o'clock, and that's about it. But thank you very much for coming uh, this early this morning. We appreciate it. So uh, this might surprise you, but we're going to talk primarily this morning, a few other things, but we're going to talk primarily this morning about the resurrection. Are you shocked? Are you surprised? Okay. So I I know I've I've been around this church world thing for quite some time. And I know that there are a number of people who will come on Easter, and and they're kind of like, yeah, they're going to talk about the resurrection. I get it. It's kind of the same uh, message every Sunday. But uh, what I wanted to say is that, in fact, at Redemption, uh, we talk about the fact that Jesus is risen every Sunday. Now, it may not be in the text, but at some point, uh, the text always points to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. He is risen. He gives us new life. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered everything that we can't conquer. And so we always point to that every single Sunday. So it's not like uh, we're hiding the fact from you for 51 Sundays a year that Jesus is risen, and then we spring it on you on Easter. We talk about it every Sunday. And, And the reason we do is because... There's power in the resurrection. It's not just phenomenal. It is phenomenal, but there is power in the resurrection. And we want to talk a little bit about that today. But there's, there's a backstory that we need to talk about first in order to be able to get there. And so I'm going to read a lot of scripture today out of Matthew 27 and 28. I won't read every single verse, 
I'm also going to connect some things to what we talked about Friday night on Good Friday, and then we're going to roll into the resurrection in Matthew 28. And not only that, we're not going to stop with the resurrection, but we're also going to continue with what Jesus calls us as the church to do in, in, in the wake of, of the reality of the resurrection. So if you do want to follow along on your phones or in your Bible or whatever, I'll be in 20, uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 24. So the first three verses I'll read. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So what had been happening up until this point was that the professional religious, the Jewish professional religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the council, uh, all of those guys, and they had developed a mob, a crowd, they wanted Jesus dead because Jesus was teaching some things that was, that was undercutting their status and their power. And so they wanted him dead, but they needed the Roman government to get on board with this. And so they had to get to Pilate and, get, and convince Pilate to do this. And Pilate wasn't convinced. There are a number of reasons that Pilate wasn't convinced. He eventually goes along with it, but uh, ultimately he wasn't convinced. I would even argue that it's... We don't know for sure, but I think it's very likely that Pilate eventually uh, did come to Christ after all of this happened and uh, pretty much lived his life in exile the rest of his life because the Roman government would, wouldn't have liked him to do that. And so he's pushing back against the crowd, but now he begins to see that his position as governor is in jeopardy. And so that bothers him, that worries him. And so that's why uh, he washed his hands. It's, it's, a, it's an illustration of him saying, I'm not a part of this. If you want to kill him, you take him and kill him. I'm not a part of this. He's essentially consenting to their request, but he doesn't want to be seen as a part of it. And so the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They said, we're fine with that. We just wanted you to sign off on that. And, and in fact, we're willing, if we're wrong, we're willing to be condemned by the death of this man. If we're wrong, we recognize that his blood will be on us. And we're so sure that we're right that we're even going to say, and on our children. We're going to curse our children and condemn our children in the midst of this, which is just frightening that they would do something like this. But that's how sure they were right about how wrong Jesus was. And so then Pilate released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus and delivered Jesus to be crucified. So it was a tradition on this day that if anybody else was going to be crucified, that they would actually decide to let one of them go. And Barabbas was the one that, who was let go. He was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was a really bad dude. And Jesus went in his place, kind of a picture of, of salvation, to, to go to the cross. So here, here's the thing, and this is tough, because... Um, Again, I, I happen to think that when, when we're in the New Jerusalem and, and we're walking around talking to all of these saints and, and going, hey, there's Paul, and look, there's even Nebuchadnezzar. I want to talk to him about that cow thing. Anyway, it, I think it's really possible that we're going to see Pilate up there too. But Pilate is still in that phase of dealing and, and, and uh, struggling with, with the reality of Jesus that I think all of us went through at one time or another, probably in our lives. I know I certainly did. I didn't come to Christ until I was 27 years old, where he thinks it's right, but he's got a huge political and worldly problem right in front of him, and he decides to do what's politically expedient in the moment instead of what's right. And yet Jesus, 
because he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the, from the grave, he could forgive even that. He forgave Peter. He could have forgiven Judas if Judas had just come to him. And he could forgive Pilate for doing this as well. In fact, Pilate was a part of the plan. And Jesus knew that going in. Jesus kept telling his disciples, this is the plan, this is my purpose, this is where I'm going. And Pilate's a part of that. And so he kind of had to do that. And yet, he must have eventually felt bad about that. So what we talked about on Good Friday was this idea that all these people there were willing to say, Jesus' blood be on our hands and be on us and be on our children. And they were eventually condemned for this, those that didn't look at Jesus on the cross and how he died, and then finally change their mind. And I just want to mention this. I, I, ha I can't go by this without mentioning this. This is the fervor that you and I can get involved with when it comes to political and religious power. It's so tempting. Polit worldly, political, and religious power is so tempting. In fact, we live in a world today where it seems like political power is the most important power that people can have, and it's the power that most people want. And, and, and it, it takes us over this fervor for it. And, and we're willing, in the midst of that political and religious power, if we think we can gain it somehow, we're willing to do anything, say anything, and curse anything in order to gain it, which is exactly what these people did. We're willing to suffer anything for it. And that's a, an example of that. But we need to understand that Jesus is actually the antithesis of this worldly, political, and religious power. He's the antithesis of it. And, and if we would only come to him, we would begin to recognize that power that Jesus has over this worldly power that is so tempting and alluring and, and seemingly promises to satisfy us, but it never does satisfy us. And the interesting thing, of course, is that religious and political power doesn't look like anything that Jesus did. Political and religious power would never say, I am God, but I'm going to go and suffer what everybody else deserves on the cross just so that you don't have to suffer. I am going to take your place. That's not what political and religious power looks like. That's the power of Christ and the resurrection. And so we see this this dichotomy just staring us in the face in this moment with the crowd and with Pilate and with Jesus. The people who wanted Jesus dead were so sure that they were right and so intoxicated with this idea of power that they willingly accepted their own condemnation. But the cross wasn't the end of the story. The interesting thing about the cross is that once Jesus is raised, that, that blood then becomes the promise that Jesus made at the Last Supper. That blood then becomes the blood of the new covenant, the blood that saves us, the blood that forgives us of our sins, the blood that reconciles us with God. And that's what we get to read about the rest of the way. We are going to talk about the crucifixion, but we're going to get to the resurrection. But I feel like we need the backstory before we get to the uh, resurrection. And it's really good news. So in verse 32, we'll start there. As he went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. There are two pieces of the cross, and Jesus had been beaten severely. He could only carry one, and so they asked uh, Simon to carry another for him. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of, of a skull in Aramaic, they offered Jesus wine to drink that was mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. There are two instances where Jesus is offered wine to drink 
Uh, one of them is here on the way to the cross, and, and this wine was actually a sort of a narcotic mixture that was supposed to help deaden the pain and calm uh, the person who was going to be crucified. And, and Jesus uh, ended up refusing this wine, but he does end up taking the sour wine later on because he was thirsty, and that was the wine that was offered to him on the cross. And when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Uh, this is, again, another detail that's included in some of the other Gospels as well. Uh, the average um, Mediterranean era, area first century man would wear five pieces of clothing, and the Roman uh, guard that was there in charge of the crucifixion there were four of them there. So if you understand, uh, it, was, it was a big deal to be a Roman soldier and get selected for the execution squad because you always got the estate of the person being executed, and the estate of the person being executed was usually just his clothes. I, I know this in, in our day and age where we can go to Old Navy anytime we want and buy whatever we want for practically nothing. Um, I know it seems strange to say this, but clothes were really valuable in the first century, and people wanted other people's clothes. And so the, the Roman soldiers wanted this duty to be on the crucifixion execution detail because then they would get their clothes. But if you know there's four of these guys and there's five pieces of clothing, you know the math doesn't work. And so in order to fulfill the prophecy in Psalm 22, where it says they divided uh, the clothes and, and none of them were torn, uh, each guy got one of the pieces of clothes, and then they cast lots, which Psalm 22 says they did. They cast lots for that last piece of clothing because they didn't want to split it up. Then they sat down and kept watch over Jesus there. So the Roman guard is there watching and taking care of and making sure all of this is secure for every single moment. And over Jesus' head... They had put the charge against him. They always put the charge against the criminal on the top of the cross so that people could see what that person did so that you were warned not to ever do it lest you end up on, on the cross as well. And this is what it read. This is the king of the Jews. And, and, and so we know from the Gospel of John that this, this is what Pilate wrote for the top of the cross. And the professional religious people were really angry at Pilate that he did this. So they went to him and they said, no, we want you to change what you wrote on the top of the cross to, this is, Jesus said he was the king of the Jews, but he's really not. And Pilate said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's the only thing that Pilate didn't give the professional religious people. And the commentators make a big deal out of this. They call this Pilate's psychological revenge against this maddening crowd that he was really not that happy with. And so he said, I've written what I've written. You're just going to have to deal with it. And so they had to deal with it. And then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They're mocking Jesus. This was part of the crucifixion experience. And they were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked Jesus, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, let me just say here, these guys saw most, if not all, of Jesus' signs and miracles already. They were there. Because Jesus turned water into wine. That's enough for some of y'all right there. He's the savior, okay? 
He turned water into wine. Even, even 3.2 beer, and you'd be like, yeah, he's God. Okay, so he turned water into wine. He healed a blind man, a man that was born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people with essentially one of those little um, uh, vegetable kits that you get at Safeway. That's what he did, okay? And now they're saying, okay, if he comes down off the cross, we'll believe. No, they wouldn't. They had enough evidence. They had enough. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus didn't come down. He, the die is cast at this point. They're just mocking him. They never expected him to come down. They also never expected him to leave the grave, which is pretty cool. Because in the end, Jesus has the last word. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is, is three o'clock. Uh, we're not exactly sure what happened during those three hours. Uh, other uh, other um, accounts of this record the same thing. Uh, maybe there was an eclipse. Maybe there was a bad storm. Uh, maybe God just decided to make it dark because of what was happening. Uh, we don't get any details about it. I think that if it had been a storm or an eclipse, we would have gotten the details. I believe that this is just God kind of saying, I am actually watching over this, and what's happening to my son right now is a really dark and wicked thing. And about the ninth hour, so three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is important, I believe, and scholars also talk about this as well. This is the only time in all of the gospel accounts, the only time where Jesus does not refer to God as his father. This is the only time he refers to him as God. And the reason is, is because this was the moment when Jesus was on the cross and he turned into all of our sin. This was the moment that he became sin. We're told in other places in the Bible that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be then found holy and righteous before God by coming to Jesus. So in that moment when he becomes our sin, when, when our sin is transferred to him and his righteousness and holiness is transferred to us, God the Father could not look at his son anymore. He turned his back on him. And so Jesus, there's that relational break there, and so Jesus calls him my God rather than my Father. But that moment is actually really good for us. And some bystanders, some of the bystanders, hearing Jesus say, say this, said, well, he must be calling Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And one of them at once took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to Jesus to drink. But others said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's really an important detail, too. Jesus yielded up his spirit. Jesus gave up his spirit. In John chapter 10, he specifically says, no one will or is going to take my life from me. I lay my life down of my own accord. He did this. He willingly went there for us. Nobody did this to him. It seems as though it's being done to him. And, and the injustice of it all can get to us. But nobody did this to him. He did this because he loves us so much that he wanted us saved. Okay? Then verse 54 when the centurion, so there's the Roman soldier who's in charge of all of this, and those who were with him, the other soldiers and those who were watching the crucifixion, they were keeping watch over Jesus. When they saw what had happened and what had taken place, 
They were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. So now you've got the Romans who were pushed into crucifying him on behalf of the Jewish religious people. The Roman soldiers are looking up going, I think maybe he really was the Son of God. And possibly Pilate looked at him at the same time and said the same uh, thing. And again, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 12. He said, when I am raised up, it will cause people to come to me. When I am on the cross, it will cause people to come to me. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. A couple things there. A lot of people want to talk about how the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is something that's been made up, that it's a fraud, that it never actually happened. And, and, and I know it's just so different than the world we live in today. But in the first century, if you were going to make up a story like this, there is no way you would ever include this detail about the women being there and about the women actually being the first to witness and testify to the resurrection. That just wouldn't have happened. Because women were at best second-class citizens. They were considered property. Their witness, their testimony in a court of law did not mean anything. If you wanted to convict somebody of something, you needed the testimony of two or three men in order to do that. And yet, every gospel writer talks about the women and how important they were here. And here's the second thing that I would say about this. If you want to hear, I heard that amen, and that's wonderful. I like that. <laughs> And here's the second thing that uh, I want to let you know. If you want to hear a great sermon about Mary Magdalene, go to our website, Redemption Church, uh, Arizona, and, and, and go to the Arcadia Congregation and look up the sermon that Tyler James gave us on March 13th about Mary Magdalene and, and her involvement in this whole thing. It's a wonderful sermon. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered that it be given to Joseph. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his, in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Again, uh, their witness, their testimony to this. Now, Joseph, this guy Joseph of Arimathea was actually a pretty well-known professional religious person who was on the council who really should not have been doing this. But he was one of the people, along with Nicodemus, another professional religious person, who they were some of the outliers on the Jewish uh, religious council who were saying, I think this guy Jesus is actually legit. And Joseph was looking at what was going on and recognized that what happens to people who are crucified, what the Romans would do with them once they were taken down off the cross, is most of them would just be, if they didn't have a tomb to be laid in, which most of them didn't, most of them would just be taken to the, to the garbage heap outside of the city, which was known as Gehenna, and, and they would just be taken and thrown on the garbage pile there to be burned, the corpses to be burned. And Joseph looked at this, and he couldn't take it. He, he had had his own tomb cut out, and those tombs were cut out of the side of rock, and they were really solid. And usually you could fit two or three bodies in there, but Jesus was, was the first body to go in there. It was Joseph's own tomb. And then, and then we're told that this massive stone was, was uh, covered the tomb and sealed it. That stone is around anywhere from two to 4,000 pounds, which is also an important detail. 
uh, because the people who think that Jesus was ripped, whipped and then crucified and somehow he was just kind of in a coma and in a daze while he's in the tomb and then he gets up and he pushes the stone away, there's no way he could have done that. That this was an act of God. This, this miracle, this sign of the resurrection is even bigger than any of the others that Jesus did. Raising Lazarus from the dead, turning water into wine, walking on water, whatever you want to have. This was the biggest of all uh, the miracles. And, and, and the other thing that Joseph did, and there's a detail in, in this message, but also in the Gospel of John, there's more detail. The, Joseph and Nicodemus were very careful to make sure that um, the way they buried Jesus was according to the Jewish customs, because Jesus was Jewish, and they wanted to respect him in that way as well. And then finally, the fact that Joseph even went to Pilate to ask for the body is actually stunning because that would have made Joseph unclean to go into the Roman governor's quarters. So Joseph is, is sticking his neck out here for doing all of this and probably was shunned by the rest of the religious uh, community as a result of it, probably lost his status, his power, his income, and his faith community for doing this. So verse 62 the next day after this, the day after the day of preparation, so this would be uh, Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, uh, that said while he was still alive, after three days I will, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. What they're doing is they're saying, make sure the Roman guard stays there um, even after the tomb has been sealed up. We want him, the Roman guard, to guard this thing until that three days passes to make sure that Jesus can't get out. And that's exactly uh, what happened. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So add your own guard to that. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So what they did was they put the seal of Caesar on this tomb. And anytime you put the seal of Caesar on anything, whether it's on an envelope or on a tomb, it doesn't matter what you put it on. If that seal of Caesar is broken, you break it at the risk of you being executed. And they didn't exactly have due process and Miranda rights back then. If they suspected you ever of breaking any seal of Caesar, they would just execute you. And so this is a big deal that it also gets sealed by, with the seal of Caesar. And then remember that the disciples wanted to have nothing to do with being around the tomb because of the Roman guard. There's no way they could overpower the Roman guard and, and, and try to get Jesus' body out of there. Again, this is just securing the fact that Jesus is in there. And again, if you want to hear more about um, all of the alternate theories of the resurrection, there's a sermon on our website later in March where we talk about that as well. So go and make it secure. So they went and made the tomb secure. And so now the stage is set. Here it is. Now it's Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. Everything's calm and peaceful, kind of like it is today, outside. And here's what happens. Now the day after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now understand, that's a big, that's a significant detail because the Roman soldiers weren't afraid of anything, and they were tough. 
but they were afraid of this. And, and here's the thing, if they lose the body, they get executed. That's, that's the way the Roman military and the Roman justice worked as well. If you lost a prisoner and Jesus was essentially their prisoner, you would take the prisoner's uh, place. But the angel said to the women, notice he goes to the women instead of the soldiers, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, as he said, he's trying to get these women and eventually the male disciples, he's trying to get them to start connecting the dots. This is what he said was going to happen. And he says, come quick, come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Now, what kind of fear was it that, that these women had? Uh, that word translated fear can mean scared out of their wits, certainly. But it can also mean it's a type of fear that you have where you're not exactly sure what's going on. You're not sure what's going to happen next. You're anxious about it. You're afraid that it might be something that you can't handle. But there's a little bit of excitement because now you're starting to connect the dots and you're beginning to realize that maybe Jesus is actually alive, that he's been risen from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. And it's mixed with this joy, so we understand that that's how this fear is at that time. And so they ran and told the disciples. And behold, Jesus met the disciples and said, Greetings. And they came and looked at, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so now we have Jesus is raised. We're getting ready for some of his other resurrection appearances. But we also get this great passage at the end of Matthew that a lot of people know about. Some people call it the Great Commission, but I want to start just a few verses before that because there's a verse in there that tends to hang up. Actually, it's a word that tends to hang up some people, and I want to talk about it. So here's verses 16 and 17. So now this is the wrap. They're, they're in Galilee, and the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain on which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Now, that word hangs up a lot of people. Why were they doubting? Here's Jesus. He's raised from the dead. Why are they doubting? Well, if you actually look at this word in the Greek, what you find out is, is that the word means to waver between two paths or two positions or two directions. It means to waver be between what you're going to do next. They didn't doubt the resurrection. They were doubting what it meant to their lives now that he was really raised. Some of them had gone back to their, to their vocations. We, we know that a lot of them were fishermen, and they'd, they'd gone out back and started fishing again already. So now they're wondering, what does this mean that Jesus is actually raised? How is this going to change my life now? What's next? But some of the disciples already knew. We're going to start this new thing called the church, this new way, this, this thing that's been around now for 2,100 years. We're going to be the ones that get to start that because we're the ones that saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so, three of the most famous verses in the Bible, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, actually, in the wake of them doubting, becomes Jesus' instruction to those who are doubting. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now you don't have to doubt anymore. I'm giving you straight-on instruction. 
And here's what Jesus says. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to do that twice in this service, twice in the next service at least, and five times in the 1045 service today. It's going to be a great celebration in all three services. Let me just mention that Trey and Tyler are going to be up here. Pastors are going to be up here. If some of you are like, really, there's baptisms today? I need to get baptized today too. And by the way, we have shorts and T-shirts for you to change into. If you want to get baptized today, you can talk to Trey and Tyler as soon as they get up here, okay? Uh, Let me get back to the text, though. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And that's why you and I are here today. That direction right there at the end of chapter 28 is why we're here today. And it's not just because uh, Jesus being raised from the dead is phenomenal, which it is, but it's because of the power. There's no way that if this thing lacked power, that this church, and I don't mean this Arcadian church, I mean the Christian church worldwide, would have lasted for 2,100 years. There's no way. The gospel has power. The resurrection has power. The Holy Spirit filling us has power. Jesus, the raised Jesus, has power. Power for forgiveness. Power for transformation. Power for restoration. Power for redemption. Power for reconciliation with God. And it has this power that I know in every human heart, the Bible talks about this, in every human heart we pine for something. We desire something that we We struggle to be able to put our finger on it. We struggle to be able to articulate it. And we keep running around the world and chasing the world's promises to be fulfilled by the things of this world. And it never seems to quite work. It might work for a few minutes or a few days or even a few weeks. But ultimately it wears off. This is the power. This is the fulfillment. This is the completion that you've been looking for, that we've all been looking for all of our lives. It's in Christ. That's where it is. It is the gospel It is the risen Lord today. The resurrection is the single mechanism that makes grace the reality that it is. And I know that those of you who have been around here for a while, you've heard me define grace before, but for those who haven't been here, you need to hear this. And for those who have been here, you need to hear it again. We need to hear this every single day. How do you define grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Big question, what can you do to merit unmerited favor? Not one thing. He has done it all. And that's the beauty of the resurrection. And here's another thing about grace. Grace is very much like water because it always runs downhill and it seeps. And once you get a taste of it, you cannot get enough of it. And so, the main, key, essential, only question of the Christian faith and in your life becomes this. Is the resurrection true? That's the most important question each of you will ever answer in your life. Is the resurrection true? And scripture and history and the testimony of his disciples says it is. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll go into our time of reflection. Our Father God, we're so grateful. We are grateful for the cross, but we're grateful for the cross because we know that Sunday comes, and we here we are on Sunday. We get to celebrate the resurrection of your Son. He is risen. 
Father, thank you for that. Thank you for that good news. I pray now, as the band comes and we sing, as we do these baptisms, I pray again that every heart in here would turn towards your Holy Spirit. Welcome your Holy Spirit. Allow them to be filled by your Holy Spirit as we celebrate this time in song and in baptism and in prayer. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So ordinarily on Sundays, when we have the reflection time, what we do is we take the Lord's Supper. We did that Friday night. Uh, we have a different sacrament this morning that we're going to do. We do this on Easter every year. We do it other Sundays as well, but it's, uh, it's very special on Easter because we do it during the services. Uh, we're going to have baptisms today. And so, uh, as I mentioned, we have two today. I really don't get to be the dunk master today because I'm a little bit restricted with this thing. And so every person who comes up is also going to have somebody who's actually going to lower them into the water, which represents the grave of Jesus. And then when they pop up out of the water, it's new life in Christ. We are buried with Christ in baptism and in, in, and in his death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We need to understand that baptism is actually not salvific. It doesn't save anybody. It's merely an outward testimony of the reality that's already happened for these people. All of these people who are getting baptized have confessed Jesus, some of them for a long, long time. And I know each and every one of them. I know their stories and their beautiful stories. So while we sing this next song, we're going to sing and pray and contemplate what's going to happen next. And then during the second song, the last song, we're going to come back up here and we're going to have uh, today uh, Jason Kiernan, this, in this morning service, Jason Kiernan is going to come up and Eric Wells is going to be baptizing him, his friend. Uh, Eric Wells will do that. And then um, Nathan Blake is going to be coming up and his friend Ben Bear is going to be baptizing him during that time. We'll come back up here. Uh, during this interim, if you want to talk to somebody about baptism, please see Trey or Tyler. They should be standing. Where are they? Oh, there they are. There's Tyler. Where's Trey? And there's Trey. You can go see either one of those if you want to talk to somebody about And like I said, we've got shorts and T-shirts. You can keep the shorts and T-shirts, too. It's kind of a good deal. Anyway, so we're going to do that. And then when we come back up, we're, we're, we're going to celebrate these baptisms, okay? Everything else I consider lost. No greater love than the shedding of your blood. I declare my allegiance to the cross. I declare my allegiance to the cross. How incredible. You pay my cost. How great an offering that you lay down. 
Sing my own 
I don't know why, but I got really emotional watching Andrea and Tyler laying down the stuff to prepare for these baptisms because I knew it meant new life. And that just that little thing. There's so many other things that have happened today that I could have been excited about, but just laying down the mats for all the water here. And these two guys. So Jason, come on up with Eric and, and uh, Nathan, you as well. Come on up. I know it's going to get a little tight up here. That's all right. So hang in there for a minute. So we asked each person getting baptized to give us a sentence on why they're getting baptized. And, and here you go. Hang in there with us. I'm going to read them all to you, even the ones that are from the other services, because we're a community, and I want you to hear about what the others are doing, but also these two as well. Here's Jason. Jason says, This last year has really made me stronger in my faith, and I feel I am finally ready to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Nathan says, this is something that's been on my heart for some time now, and it's time that I make this commitment to God. At 9 a.m., Bria Vidingoff is getting baptized. Her father, Kirk, is going to be uh, dunking her. And she says, I have believed Jesus is the Son of God for as long as I can remember. I chose to get baptized on Easter to show everyone that I believe. I've known Bria her whole life, and I know that's true. She's, I've never known her to not know Jesus. And then Azalea Rodriguez is also getting baptized at 9 o'clock. Michelle Hutchins is going to be baptizing her. And she says, I'm getting baptized because of Jesus, because of what he's done for me and who he's calling me to be. At 1045, Malia is getting baptized. Now, believe it or not, she was a Christian before today. And she says, I'm getting baptized because I believe that Jesus did what I could not do for myself. And as a believer, I know he calls me to follow his example and be baptized in the community of believers as an outward symbol of the inward working of his Holy Spirit in my life. JT and Teague are also getting baptized today. JT's on sound somewhere around here. He's been about part of us for a, a while, and so has Teague. JT is getting baptized. By the way, they're going to be in there together, and I'll explain that in a minute. JT is getting baptized because he wants to proclaim the Lord as his Lord and Savior publicly and pursue a life with Jesus. And Teague is getting baptized today because she wants to publicly pro proclaim her commitment, loyalty, and faith to Jesus. JT and Teague are getting married in September. Now, unfortunately, they're going to Portland to get married. They'll be back here, but they are going to Portland. I think they want that blessing of God's reign on them during the ceremony. There's some tradition about that, getting married when it's raining. But they also said together they are choosing to be baptized together because they are about to join each other in marriage in September and they want to proclaim their new identity in Jesus together, both independently and as one. 
They wanted to let everyone know how much this church community has helped them in their faith and their relational journey. Emmy Payne is also getting baptized today, our children's director. Now again, she's been a Christian for quite some time, but she wanted to do it today. I'm getting baptized today to publicly profess my love for Jesus and the sacrifices he made for all of us. I'm blessed to have found a community that allowed me to serve him faithfully and grow in my relationship with him. I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And finally, Savannah Thompson is getting baptized at 1045. And that means something very special to Tyler Thompson here. I believe he'll be the one doing the baptism for Savannah. And she is getting baptized because she believes Jesus died for her sin and rose again to give her new life. Hallelujah. And so now, uh, Jason, we're going to go ahead and start with you. If you will to the... of life. <laughs> Let's sing to him.
Amen. He is risen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.